We appreciate that team so much. Beautiful music through the service again. Thank you, choir, and thank each of you for your singing this morning. Good to see some of our college students home for Christmas already. And so if, if that's you today, we welcome you back. Glad you're here with your church family. Uh, glad to see you. Hope it's going well. Yesterday, uh, Lois and I made a visit to Garrison to go visit our oldest living church member. I think she's the oldest living church member. Evelyn Dennis is 107. If you know of a church member older than that, let me know who she is or he is so I can go see that person too. But we had a wonderful visit. If you never met Evelyn if, and you have an opportunity, I'd encourage you to attempt to do that. She's fun-loving and something else. Now, she was a beautician for many years. She still takes care of herself in, in, in incredible ways. She's just immaculate. And as I was sitting next to her at the nursing home and Lois and I were visiting, I noticed her nails were all painted just with perfection. And I commented, I couldn't help it, I said, Evelyn, your nails, they just look beautiful today. And she's so fun-loving, so I thought I'd have a little, little joke, and I had just trimmed my nails. But I said, how do my nails look? Am I doing a good job? You know, thinking of a manicure type thing. She misunderstood me. She said, I, I really haven't done nails now for many years. I, I can't do those for you today. And I thought, well, that's a good thing. You know, I have never had them done in 55 years, and I, I, I didn't tell her that, but I don't have plans to have them done. But it was hilarious. We had such a great visit. Evelyn is above average, not just in terms of her years of life on this earth, but really in her spirit. She really is. And I find that to be so encouraging when we go and see her. Uh, she's a joy to visit. It's pretty easy to be average in life. You name the category. Uh, you could think of a few. We might say of an individual, he was an average employee. We might say of a couple, they had seemed to have an average kind of a marriage. Uh, we might say of a student, he or she is an average student. It's pretty easy to become average, to live life at the average. Uh, think of a few other categories. Some of us might rate ourselves as having an average prayer life. Some of us might rate ourselves as only being average in our giving. It's so easy to be average. It's not easy to go against the odds, to defy the odds and beat, and beat the average in any category of life. Anybody here aspire to just finishing life being average in the categories of life? Anybody here aspire to be below average <laughs> in any of the categories of life? Probably not too many, not, not too many hands going up right now. But odds are that you and I will fall at the average. That's why it's called the average. It's where most of us live. Reading a book right now that's challenging me to get beyond the average. To be above average, writes the author, demands a choice. It requires that we defy the odds. You have no control over whether you have been endowed with above average talent or intelligence or physical attributes. What you can control is whether you choose to live your life defined and determined by the status quo. Even when the law of averages works against you, you can still defy the odds. Every day, isn't that true? Every day we can choose our attitude. Every day we can choose, most of us, when we get up and what we do with our day. Uh, we have a lot of choices that we get to make and we can defy the odds and say, I don't wanna just be average in, in the new year, in my study of God's word. I don't wanna be average in my giving. I don't wanna be average in, you name the category, you can defy the odds and say, I want to take some inspiration from people like Evelyn. I want to smile into my hundreds if I live that long. I want, to, I want to love life. I want to be all in with life. I want to let God redeem these days. 
Here's the, a summary of this book that I've been reading. The author says, average people choose average lives. It's really a choice at the end of the day. If we are average in different areas of life, it's because we've chosen it. We've resigned ourselves to it. It's not because we, we have to. And so instead, we need to, to challenge ourselves. And of course, Scripture does that constantly. It challenges us to defy the odds. It challenges us to be more than nominal Christians. It challenges us, challenges us to be strong in our faith, even when life is very hard, when it's arduous. You know, being an average follower of Jesus, frankly, will diminish what God can accomplish in our lives. If we don't aspire to be more than an average follower of Jesus, whatever that is, however we might define that, but somebody that isn't really on fire and lets the fire go out and somebody that just gives up and coasts in the Christian life, perhaps that's average, right? You can form your own definition of that. But I want to remind you today that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are one of God's miracle children. It took, it took a, a work of God to make you a child of God, and you're one of his dear miracle children. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you, has he, God, quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sins. God has quickened us. He's made us alive to himself. He's alerted us to what truth is, to what reality is, and, that, that, and who he is. And so even though we only begin to understand those big categories, we understand. We know truth. We can follow him our whole life long, however long or short our life might be. We're his miracle children with the capacity to touch eternity with our short human life. That's pretty big. That's exciting to think that the short human life, which is really short for all of us here today, it's important to remember that we can touch eternity with this little life, with the days that we've been given. You know, it was in November of 1654, most of us weren't around back then, that French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal survived a near-fatal carriage accident. He only lived another eight years. He died in Paris at age 39 of some stomach illness. Yet that accident was one of those shake-me-to-wake-me shake kind of moments. It persuaded him to turn his intellect that the Lord had given him and direct it towards theology. His late-in-life devotion to his faith produced some very important writings. You've probably read some of his thoughts, but one of the best-known is called Pascal's Wager. It's this, and this is really thoughtful, and this statement has helped a lot of people consider the claims of Christ. Talk about living above average, giving your, your gifts to God and seeing what he'll do with it. He said this, if Jesus doesn't exist, the non-Christian loses little, by believing in him, and gains little by not believing. If Jesus does exist, the non-Christian gains eternal life by believing and loses an infinite good by not believing. Powerful statement. For people who are investigating Christianity to look at that and think about that with, with their minds and say, gee, I really should consider the claims of Jesus. I should look at who he says he is, who he claims to be. And Blaise Pascal's life, in the short life that he had, 39 years, uh, turned into a powerhouse life for the king when Blaise Pascal made the choice to devote the abilities that the Lord had given him to the Lord and not just to use them for himself, for his own advancement or ego or, or what have you. His writings have influenced people now for hundreds of years to see the worthiness of Jesus Christ. I like to say it this way. Pascal's life became good news Shared 
Now, the Bible calls the good news of Jesus, the gospel, good news, the glad tidings of God. And now here's a, I hope, what is a powerful challenge to you. Wouldn't you like it to be said of you, if your name's Karen, for instance, Karen's life became good news shared. Ed's life was good news shared. Absolutely true. Her life was good news shared. Johnny's life was good news shared in whatever days of, of life, whatever span God gave him or her. Those, those days were good news shared. That's an epitaph that I'd love to have if said of me someday. Here's one I, I wouldn't want said of me. His influence for Christ was average or below average. I don't want that. But if I'm not careful, I'll wind up there. So will you. Think about that. We can give our lives to many causes, can't we? So many things compete for our time and our, our treasure and our talent. But C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. The one with the most toys at the end of life still dies and leaves the toys. Oh, it's so easy to live for things that are temporal. I love the example in Scripture and outside of Scripture of people who got this, who said, you know, I got one life to live. I don't know how long it's going to be. The, I'm standing in line somewhere, that line when the Lord calls me home, and I don't even know where I'm at in that line, but I want to live for, for right now. For when my name comes up to go home, I'm ready, and I've lived my life for him. You have to look no further in Scripture than a man named Paul who next to Jesus, influenced Christianity, probably second to nobody. He said this in 1 Corinthians 9, which isn't our main text today, but it's just one as a, a preface, really, to the message. He says, though I am free from all people, I'm not a slave to people. I'm a free man as a believer and as a citizen. He looked at himself as, as a man of freedom. But he says, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. He was talking about sharing the good news with his life sharing the gospel. He was a completed Jew, a messianic Jew, a Jew who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but he becomes known to us in scripture as the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jew. He shared the good news with the Jews, but also to the non-Jew. And he said, I'm in, I'm all in. To the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the weak, I become weak that I might win the weak. He was saying, I, I identify with people at whatever point of common ground I can find with them that I may win them that I may draw them to Jesus, to see his worth, to see his hope, to see his, his joy. To the weak I became weak, that I, might, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now he wasn't on an ego trip, he knew he didn't save anybody. The Holy Spirit does the work of transformation, of regeneration. But he's, he's also, don't miss what he's saying, he's engaged, he's intentional about letting his life point people to Jesus. He's not unintentional, he's not He's not average. He's not below average. I do it all for the sake of the good news, gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. At the S1 service last night at Cornerstone, I got invited to speak and shared a message, a Christmas message with the folks there. Beforehand, I met one of my good friends from Youth for Christ who really has the gift of evangelism, and he's a wonderful guy. Sanders is his name. Some of you probably know who Sanders is. He's always bumping into people 
who have no relationship with Jesus, and he has just a way of winning them to Jesus. And he was telling us, and he's humble about it, he was telling us about a young man, uh, 18 or 19 years old. He said, pray for this gentleman. He mentioned his name. He recently came to faith in Jesus, and he's, he's saved. He goes, Kent, I know he's a believer now, but, uh, you know, he's got a lot to, to grow into. He, he said, he came up to me recently, and he said, he said, Sanders, now that I'm a Christian, he said, I'll tell you, I used to smoke pot for the devil. Now I'm going to smoke that for Jesus. And Sanders was like, oh, uh, I see. Uh, what do you say to that? I said, you know, sanctification is a long process, isn't it? And, and so you just deal with that. You just, okay, well, let's talk about that a little bit. And, but, you know, it's, 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 evangelism is messy. If, if anybody tells you it isn't, they're lying. Huh? Uh, because new Christians need a lot of aftercare. They need their spiritual diapers changed, if you will. Uh, they need a lot of grace and love and understanding. And, and so he's an inspiration to me. Sanders is above average in his zeal to share the good news. So is the Apostle Paul. Verse 23, to highlight that, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them. Those who receive Jesus, they're, they're the fruit of my ministry. He says, I want to share with them in the blessings. And I told Sanders last night, I said, you know, it never gets old, does it? When you see somebody cross that line from death to life, and you see the, the newness of joy in them, you see God's truth is now real to them, and they're beginning to understand God. And I said, it never gets old, does it? And he goes, no, even though it gets kind of funny and strange at times in, in what happens. You know, to summarize what the Apostle Paul was saying in the chapter of 1 Corinthians 9, you know what it is? I've preached this so I can get in the past, so you maybe have heard this. He's saying, I'll do this. This is an above-average commitment to sharing Jesus. He says, I'll do everything short of sinning to win somebody to Jesus. Wow. I hope that inspires you. I hope it challenges you. I hope it convicts us. I will do everything short of sinning in order to bring the hope of Christ to others. Now, that is my uh, interpretation, right? You're not going to find an exact verse on that. I think he'd say amen. I think he'd say, yep, you get it. That's what I'm saying. You could read on for further context. I don't think you'll find a different conclusion. So the abridged version of what he's saying is, don't be average in your passion to help others discover Christ. He pushes us out of our comfort zone. He upsets our apathy when it comes to the importance of pointing people to Jesus. Some of us today are perhaps on a fence, saying, well, I get that, but I don't know. I'm just not comfortable sharing my faith. I don't know how to talk about Jesus without fumbling the ball. I, what if I get asked a question I can't answer? And You know, we can, we can have indecision. We can have those contemplations. But if we fail to make a decision to become intentional with our lives to sharing Jesus in the ways that we're able to do that, whether it's verbally and through service and through prayer and through our giving, the many ways that we can share the good news, if we, if we just can't get our minds around making a decision, guess what? That's a decision in itself, isn't it? That's a decision. Failure to decide on whether or not we will share Christ with others is still a decision. So be careful of that. We can't stay on a fence forever. We can look at words like Paul shares to, to us in the Corinthians and say, man, he's on fire. I'm inspired. But you can't just leave it there. If you do, if you don't make a decision to say, Lord, help me move forward in the one life I've got to emulate Jesus and to, to lead others towards you. And, and, and sometimes it's so simple and we make it so hard. 
I, one way that I've been stressing in the last week is that you and I might, uh, might invite people to come closer to Jesus is invite them to church on Christmas Eve. And wouldn't it be cool? We have two services. Wouldn't it be neat if we needed a third? Because so many of us took this to heart and we truly invited somebody. I'll bet if I said this last night to the group over at Cornerstone Church, I said if everybody here invited somebody to their prospective church, where their church where they, where they worship, on Christmas Eve, I said 80% or more of the people that are asked will come. We know that from statistics, that people will respond to an invitation, most will, to come to a Christmas Eve service. They might have been going anyway. They might have been thinking about it anyway. And what happens is if you invite a friend, a neighbor, a relative to come with you to one of your church's Christmas Eve services, they'll hear the gospel here. So you're helping them. You're leading them towards Christ in a very gentle way. If they don't make a decision that night to follow Jesus, have you failed? No, of course not. The Holy Spirit saves people through a process of time. He sows the good seed of the word into people's lives. He allows them to see, to see the life of Jesus in other Christians, and they go, hmm. And I remember myself when I walked into a, a gathering 30-some years ago on the campus of UND, a, a, a Campus Crusade for Christ Thursday night meeting. I walked into that as a friend, as a guest of somebody that I just made friends with. And I could sense just in the spirit of the room a, a glow, a warmth, a joy. And I was scratching my head thinking, man, I, I grew up going to church, but there's something here that I don't have. These people have something I don't have. I was, I'm missing something. What is it? And I didn't realize it at that moment, but my heart hadn't yet crossed that line of faith. And put my, Later that night, I put my faith in Jesus, and I was born, born anew. And I had what they had. I had the joy of God's spirit. I had the knowledge of forgiveness. You know what? I look back on that now, and I realize that Going, growing up in church, while that was a good thing, because my heart was never regenerated, was never made alive to Jesus, it just kind of became a functional thing, a religious thing. But many years later, as a young adult, as a college student, when I came into a Christian gathering at a, at a college, I, my heart was more open. My eyes, God had been preparing me. And so I could see the joy of Jesus more readily than I could see it when I was even growing up. I was more open. The Christians I grew up with, the people around me, including my own parents who knew the Lord and loved the Lord, they had Jesus, there's no question. But I wasn't open. I wasn't ready. It was a long process, friends, before the scales could come off on my eyes and I could see there's joy in Jesus. There's a need to come to him. And then I kicked myself. I thought, why didn't I do this sooner? Why did I go through my teens and, and, and really my major growing up years without him? And boy, did I have a lot of catch-up to do, and I'm still catching up to know him. I had some wasted years, so many of us do, don't we? We need to make a decision if we know Jesus that we're gonna help others to know him. We don't want them to miss out, to spend all of their lives just missing out. So I turn you to John chapter 20, to these verses. We have in John chapter 20, at the end of, of this chapter, really the summary of the whole book of John, the New Testament book of John. Here's a good question to ask for yourself. If you're reading through the Bible, you know, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of the books, Ephesians, Revelation, go Old Testament, why did the author write that book? Try to discern through prayer and study, because the Bible says study to show yourself approved in this book, this book of God. Ask yourself and try to discern what was the original message that, that the people heard as this person, this author wrote this book. 
you really want to get down to the baseline of good Bible interpretation, you want to know what did this message mean to, to its original hearers. And for that, you're going to look at history and culture, and you're going to consider a lot of things. So here's the question. Let's apply it to the book of John. Why did John write John? Why did, why did John the disciple, one of the intimates of Jesus, not just one of the 12, but one of the three, Peter, James, and John, the, one of those privileged three that spent even more time with Jesus than the rest of them did, why did he write the gospel of John? He tells you in this passage. He gives you his purpose statement at the end of the book. Really, chapter 21 is more of an epilogue. This is, in many respects, the end of the book. And so I love this. He's disclosing why he even wrote it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So you, can, you hear the summary? It's a, it's a statement of summary. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What's he doing? He's pointing his hearers, his original hearers, to see Jesus as what? The Christ. The Christ, the one that they knew was prophesied in the Old Testament, in the law and the prophets. Christ is a title, isn't it? It, it, It's a title for Messiah. It's synonymous with Messiah. That you may believe that he is the one. He is the Christ. He is divine. He's the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, that you might have it to the full, that you might have it abundantly. John is piggybacking on that here in a sense, isn't he? He's, He's telling his hearers then and today, I want you to know about Jesus, and I want you to believe in him and put your faith in him. I want you to turn to him for salvation. By believing in him, you will have life in his name. We're going to unpack those verses uh, this morning. I think it's very, very important. But let me give you just a few uh, highlights of things I like to do that help people sometimes take a step closer to Christ. So if you're going to go serious with me this morning and say, you know what? I want to be above average with sharing my faith. I have a testimony. I know what Jesus did in my life. Nobody would deny it. I can't deny it. I'm going to tell somebody about it as God gives me opportunity. I'm going to be responsible with that. I'm going to be responsible with the gospel. First thing I like to do when the Lord puts these people in front of me from time to time, opportunities to share the good news, is I try to be sensitive to them and discern their level of openness, their readiness. Now, we don't see people's hearts, right? But we can read body language, and we can certainly hear words uh, that they may share with us. You might ask a person the question, what are you looking for in life? These are just potential openers to a spiritual discussion. What are you looking for in life? Or if I could tell you about a way to experience freedom from perpetual guilt, would you want to hear it? Can I tell you about something that has impacted my life and given me peace? You're asking permission in that moment. And this is, there's lots of ways to do evangelism. But these are some of the questions that I like to start with. They're gentle, they're sincere. And they show people you care about them and you respect them. You, you have a dig- you're giving them their, you're honoring their dignity. And you will be able to tell pretty quick by their body language and what they say to you if you can go further with that. If they say, you know what, no thank you, I'm not interested in that. And we fear that, right? Most times they're not going to say that. They're going to give you, they're going to let you go to second base, so to speak. And yeah, tell me. And then you keep watching and listening and you're really praying silently too. Lord, give me discernment, give me wisdom. Is this person open to you? If she or he is not open, if I begin to really sense that, I'm gonna make things worse. 
if I really start to ramrod the gospel and say, well, you know what? You really need to turn or burn right now because I'm going to go to the sky and you're going to fry if you don't do this right now. Is that going to help somebody? They're just going to want to get away from you. I would not suggest that aggression. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that heavy. But we don't want to hide truth. They say, well, why do, you, why do I need Jesus? Or, or I believe there's many ways to God. You need to be ready. You need to have something in your toolbox here. You know what the best way to equip your toolbox is? Is to be a student of the word yourself. Because the word of God gives people faith. And so if you have scripture in your, hidden in your heart, you're able to bring scripture to them. The Lord will call it to mind. If you're going to do the king's business in this, don't think he's going to stand idly by and just let you suffer through that. <laughs> you're going to come alive and see him work and give you words and give you recall to your mind just what that person needs to hear. You're going to see the work of God. That's exciting. We shouldn't deny ourselves that. So assess a person's willingness to believe, and the Lord will give you discernment. He'll give you wisdom. And then explain to them, too, what the word gospel even means. We said last or two weeks ago that the word is that God chose uh, in, the, in the language of the Bible, and really the language of the culture, the word gospel means simply glad tidings. God picked that word to, to be recorded and attached to, the, to, to his son. He said, Paul, declare to them the gospel, the good news of me. This is good news. So why should we feel afraid? I know we have fear at times, but why should we feel hesitant or embarrassed about what we're trying to do when we communicate the good news to people? It's the glad tidings of God. It's the best news they could ever hear. It's the news that God is, is not hate, doesn't hate them, but he loves them. He's made a way for them to come home to him. I think that's a, another way to open up a spiritual discussion. He said, you know what the word gospel even means? It means good news. Can I tell you about the good news? Or do you know about the good news? Well, we'll move on into our text because I, I, I want to get to that very quickly here. But ask the people that you talk to these opening kinds of questions. Ask them such things as, would you like to come home to God through Christ? And that's not the opener. That's more midway or even later. If they're really tracking with you and they're interested and they're serious and, and you just sense the Lord is really in this moment, he's really moving in their heart and he's using you as a small tool to, to lead them to Jesus, I like to ask people the question, would you like to come home to God? Do you, would you like to receive Jesus? Do you know what that, you know, can we help you with that? Now there's a lot of different scripture you could use any of these. You could use none of these. You could use other scriptures. You could start with the Ten Commandments and say, have you ever broken one of these commandments? You know what the Ten Commandments are? And you can start naming a few. You ever, have you ever kept, have you kept all those perfectly? And if they're honest at all, they'll tell you in a heartbeat, uh, no. And, and that's the whole point, really, or one of the main points of the Ten Commandments is to show our need for grace because we'll never make it on our own. We don't keep the Ten Commandments. We can, we can aspire to, but none of us can, in our own strength, honor the full intent of those. But I like to take them to Romans 3.23, 6.23, a few others. One thing that I've done over the last few years with individuals when we're having a spiritual discussion, and I'm not sure where they're at spiritually, but they're open to me. We've moved past that, that assessment phase, and they're open. I'll say, you know, could we look at some scripture together? I've never had anybody turn me down. But what I like to do when they say yes is I, I don't use my iPad, I'll take a regular conventional Bible, and I'll look up the, all those verses one at a time, and I'll put it in front of them. And I'll, I'll place it in their lap and say, could you read that verse? I'd rather have them read it and hear the word of God 
in their own voice. I think that even adds a receptivity, a certain receptivity to their mind, to their heart. And the word of God, the Bible says, is living. It is active. It's powerful. It's sharp. And as they read it, we can ask them just for a quick feedback. Say, well, what does that verse seem to say to you? Well, all of us have sinned. I say, does it say a few of us have sinned? No, it says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you can go to the next one, uh, Romans 6.23. Uh, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And, and you can ask them, well, you know, sin, sin carries a price, doesn't it? It has a consequence. It's going to kill us. It's already killing us, isn't it? You can start to probe. You can, you can piggyback on what they're reading and just ask gentle follow-up questions. And then you move on to the next one. You don't sermonize them. You just say, uh, that's great. Thank you for commenting on that. And you take them to the next verse. You get down to Romans ten thirteen, and it's, it says, all those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by that point in time, if they're open, bing, 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 the lights are going off above them and they're sensing, oh, I see my need. I see what Jesus has provided. I see I'm a sinner. I, I, need, I need a forgiver. I need a savior. I need to turn from my sin or I'm going to have to pay for my sin. But all those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. It just all clicks, right? The word of God is, brings the gospel right to their heart, right to their front door. One gentleman in my office, after he got to that verse, I said, he said, Kent, I've left out the most important part. I haven't called on him. It just bing, it just, he, 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 just, it, he answered it himself. He says, I haven't done this. I said, would you like me to help you? He said, no, I don't need help. I know what to do. And he got down on his knees and he started praying, oh God, forgive me for not turning to your son in my life and for living for myself. I was blown away. We don't save anybody, but the gospel saves. Paul, that's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Well, we need to spend some time here on the main text here today. And so we come back to John uh, chapter 20, verse 30. I just love this, these words of John. They just, I love the summary. I love the simplicity, the clarity. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Those words, if, if we just take this apart in fragments, I'm going to put up just that fragment for you. What is John saying? They, they tell us that there's more to the story than what I could tell you about. He was a contemporary, of course, of Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He said that much about himself. But yet, if you read through the whole book of John, he doesn't identify himself by name once. He's humble. He doesn't make this book about himself. You know, a lot of people, I've not written a book yet, I'm starting a book, but uh, a lot of people who've written books, who are authors, they do it for various reasons, sometimes honorable, to help other people, to teach on some subject, but sometimes it's just to pad the ego, it's to feel good, I'm an author, I did this, I did that. John doesn't mention his own name once in the course of the whole 22 chapters, 21, excuse me, 21 chapters of this book. Why? Because he's not the focus. Jesus is the focus. And so he says, now Jesus, he, he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. The point there is this, though. Why did he leave some out? Well, why did he leave out some of the accounts, some of the miracles, some of the other stories? Basically, it's, he's saying, what I've given you is sufficient to confirm you in the faith. You have enough here. You have more than enough to believe on him with what I've given you. He's saying, there's more than I could add, but I've added what I've given you more than you need. The sign in immediate view here is the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. If you look up in the chapter a little bit earlier, you see the account there of, of Thomas, 
the disciple Thomas, the one who was, we call him at times, doubting Thomas, correct? If you look back up in chapter, the chapter we're in, go back up to verse 24. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are in view here. Thomas hadn't seen the visible, physical, alive Jesus yet. And at verse 24, it says, he was not with them when Jesus came, when Jesus had appeared to the other disciples. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Even believers can be unbelievers. We all have doubts at times. Sometimes we look down our nose at Thomas, don't we? We shouldn't do that because there's a little Thomas, there's a little bit of him in most of us. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Irene, peace be with you, shalom. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then you transition to verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is John's purpose here in, in those last two verses? He's saying you have more than enough to believe on him. Now believe. And, and Jesus showed himself to Thomas, but, but you're blessed if you don't need to see Jesus visibly in order to trust in him. And so John is taking us through really the summary of his whole gospel, but these are written that you might believe. Sometimes people have difficulty believing, and so that's, again, the example of Thomas. And then we come to the next verse, the next fragment, if you will, that Jesus is the Christ. That's not a throwaway line. He is confirming. John, the disciple, is confirming he's the one, the Christ. Again, it's a title. It's a title. He's saying Jesus is the Christ that was promised in the law and in the prophets. He is God's highest ambassador, the restorer of the world, the author of perfect happiness. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other savior. So he is pointing just so clearly to Jesus and who he is. He is the Christ, he says. He is the son of God. Jesus was not a person of ordinary rank that could have been, there was no person of ordinary rank, there was no other person that could redeem humanity. So John tells us that Jesus is divine. He is fully son of God. He's fully divine in his nature. He's elevating Jesus to his proper place in the understanding of humanity. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus Christ. You need, he says to his people, you need to hear that, you need to see that. And then by believing on him, he says, you may have life. Blaise Pascal, to reference him one more time, says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. He goes on in that quote to say, whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war in order to find happiness and of others avoiding it. It is the same desire in both, attended with different views. 
The will never takes the least step but to this object, to find happiness. He says, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. That's a pretty blunt way to put that. He's saying baseline human behavior is we all will seek happiness. We all want that. And we'll do whatever we understand we should do to get it. Now look at what John said. He goes, in him is life. What you're really looking for is in him. You know, so many people today, they don't see that. And so they're turning to drugs and relationships and alcohol and a hundred things, media, to find happiness. And it isn't there. Not ultimate happiness, not real joy, not lasting happiness. So John says to us, yes, we're all looking for happiness, but he's saying, these things have I written about Jesus, that you would believe on him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing on him, you may have life in his name and all that that life entails. And it's life, it's life eternal, isn't it? It's life forever in his name, not in another name. God offers each of us what we're looking for. That quest for happiness is found in Jesus in a relationship with him. So a vital question remains is what have you done with Jesus? Have you believed on him? like Jesus wants you to believe on him, not just to know about him, but to know him, to invite him into your life by turning from sin, by turning away from yourself, your sin, and saying, I need you, Jesus. I need to know you. I need your forgiveness. That's a conscious choice. There might be someone here today that's never made that step. You know, church isn't going to save you. Hearing a sermon is not going to save you. Doing some religious things don't, aren't going to save you, but Jesus will save you if you turn to him in faith today. I've said it before from this place, but be careful what you do with the babe born at Bethlehem. Because he will either save you or he will one day be your judge. You have to make a decision about Jesus and who he is to you. Is he your savior? If he's not, someday he will be your judge. And that's the message that the truth of that is what motivates me to want to tell people about Jesus. Christmas is beautiful. It's almost sentimental in some ways. It's full of lights and glorious songs and nice things. But the babe of Bethlehem is the son of God. And while we come to recognize that incredible miracle and what that means, we have to think about what, he, what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came because sin is a big deal. Humanity is lost, and so God sent Jesus on the rescue mission, and people need to know who he is now. And if Christians don't share that good news, who's going to? If we don't, who will? If we hide it, how will they find out? Oh, my friends, let's not make it hard for people to know who Jesus is. Let me conclude. As we look at the verses in front of us, just those two verses, it's important to extend that life in his name to others. Think about that. That's my, my exhortation to you. Let others see the, the truth of who he is in your life and in your words, in the way you serve them. Many years ago, a singer-songwriter named Evie penned a song. I won't sing it, so don't worry. It was called, I, it was called Say I Do. I just looked up the lyrics to this. Many years have come and gone, since he walked upon our ground, 
They say lies don't last so long. So why is his story hanging around? Why do people stop and pray to a man that's dead and gone? When I ask them, they just say, he's coming back to take me home. And then she sings, anybody here want to live forever? Say, I do. Anybody here want to walk on golden streets? Say, I do. Anybody here sick and tired of living like you do? Say, I do, to Jesus. Anybody here want a home with love forever? Say, I do. That's the appeal of the good news. That's the promise of the good news. May people hear the good news through our lives, friends. And let me ask you today, what do you say to Jesus? Have you said, I do? I do. I want you. I want, I want to know you in my life. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received him? If you've not, maybe today's your day. I hope it is. We're not going to close with a song today, so I'll just mention one last item that's on my heart. There's a gal in town that uh, I frequent her business, and she gave me a little card, appreciation card for being a good customer. You know what meant more to me than the gift? was this little sticker she put in there. She's a Christian. I don't know if you can read it. It's kind of big. Front row people might see it. It says, find the lost at any cost. Wow, that made my day. She's living her life, her, even in her business, to be a witness for the gospel. That encourages me. I hope my life encourages her and others. That that's, that's the way I want to live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Oh, the precious gospel that turns sinners into saints that brings people the, the hope of heaven and gives them meaning in this life with all of its difficulties. Thank you for the promise of heaven through your son, the gift of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would be extenders of his love, of his hope to those near and far. Show us this week those that you'd want us to touch with your love. Show us how to do that. Give us courage to take a new step, uh, to bring our testimony to somebody, to take somebody out for dinner, and uh, just, just love on them and, and build some fresh rapport. And, and maybe at that visit or maybe the, the following visit, bring up our faith story. So many ways that you give us to, to introduce people to the, the reality of your loving son, the redeemer of all mankind. Help us, Lord, to be messengers that carry the good news for the days you give us to do it. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Joy to the world. We were going to sing that, but now let's just go live it. <laughs> Joy to the world. Thank you.